Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. It is, of course, Groundhog Day, February 2nd. We give you a little Groundhog Day, true or false, during the podcast as well. And we need to talk about so many big stories. The Conservative Party of Canada perhaps deciding they want to go, quote-unquote, in a different direction with their leader to challenge Justin Trudeau to form the next government whenever that opportunity arises. So we'll go there, and we'll be talking to David Aiken, our chief political correspondent, about that. And what's happening in Ottawa as a city right now proper for the last five days. Yes, there's very few uh, truckers left, but they are being there. They are being vocal. They are being loud. The horn honking and the closing down of the Rideau Center are both two big stories, and we cover those on the podcast as well. Thanks for checking us out. We'll talk about Tom Brady's retirement as well, which we didn't get to yesterday on the show with a former teammate of his, a three-time Super Bowl champion. So listen in for that. Toronto Today starts now this could be the day that Aaron O'Toole uh, finds out whether he survives or not there's so many questions circulating around the conservative party I used to think chaos was probably a good thing to observe from afar I kind of know it is you know chaotic people there's people that are in chaotic relationships you ever meet somebody a couple at a party and you know you drive home with your partner your girlfriend boyfriend wife husband whomever and you say those two tonight, they got a lot going on. And whether it's their, you know, there's nothing wrong with an argument. There's nothing wrong with a discussion, a debate, if voices don't get raised and whatnot. Nobody ever leaves a dinner party uh, because uh, it's it's such uncomfortable tension because people are arguing. Generally, people stop and it's good natured and it's lighthearted and eyes roll and laughs are had. I don't know that the Liberal Party of Canada is feeling that about this. I used to think that that was constantly good. Then when a party can't get out of its own way and the conservatives have given the liberals those moments these last few years, I don't know how we would make the case otherwise. They think that's a good thing when there's leadership questions about Andrew Scheer. They think that's a good thing when people speak up, when there was that senator that made that video before Christmas, Denise Batters, out in Saskatchewan. And she basically hammered, excoriated, if you like the bigger words, at this hour of the morning excoriated Aaron O'Toole for lack of leadership and commitment. And she basically said, um, you know, did you become leader? And, 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 you know, did your balls drop off? Quote the Joker in the dark night. She didn't say that, but the Joker did that kind of stuff. The liberals just dance up and down because, because they've got their own struggles. <laughs> they've got their own struggles governing and making sure the people of Canada see them as, uh, as their, you know, political guiding light people that voted. You know this is true. People that voted for Justin Trudeau once, twice, three times feel that in their bones sometimes. MPs feel that. We've talked about this on this show, that when the Liberals made everybody go to the polls last year, there were MPs kind of grumbling, going, oh, my gosh, this is the last thing I want to do. Even the new MPs that got elected in 2019, who were just relieved, breathing it out, getting used to they're just the paperweights for their desks in in, uh, in in Ottawa just got delivered to them and they got to go out in the campaign trail again in the midst of a pandemic with people that are unsettled, you know, emotionally fried, economically damaged, emotionally damaged, um, all of it. There's not too many people not suffering from something during this pandemic. I think that's fair to say. But this chaos today may end up benefiting the Conservative Party of Canada. Aaron O'Toole may not survive the day. And with a vote of confidence in his leadership coming, if you saw the news yesterday, there were people saying, I back him, I don't. I um, there, there were obviously uh, 
MPs that were put the question the question was put to them in the hallways of the House of Commons or walking on the street outside in Ottawa, which we're going to get to in a second, and they wouldn't answer the question. It's a really difficult thing. It's a very difficult thing in any context. Um, people say to me all the time, well, what do you think of this in the media? What do you think of that? What do you think of uh, of what, you know, another host on your station did? And I'm like, it's a family. It's a family. Deal with it internally. I'm not going to pound on, like, uh, uh, that's just not how any of this works or is supposed to work. You got you to, I don't think that conservatives should be getting in front of microphones questioning each other when they can do it internally. That external chaos and disorder, phrase I love to use, ends up looking bad for you. You look like you don't have a plan. You, sports teams are like this. You can't have the coach say, this is our philosophy, have the general manager contradict that, and then have the owner contradict both of them. And the conservatives have been through this at different points in time. John Ibbotson wrote in the uh, Globe and Mail late yesterday, and I think he's got this right. The conservatives could be evolving into an untenable contradiction in which no one who could lead the party can win the country and no one who could win the country can lead the party. Think about that. No one who could lead the party can win the country. No one who could win the country can lead the party. And we see this now in politics. Is this the best candidate? Not sure. How do we define that? Does he or she have the best ideas? Do they have the longest staying power? Or will more people just succumb and vote for him? Did you not see the Democrats do that against Donald Trump south of the border? I think that you did. I think that you did. When we're talking about longevity, staying power, new ideas, connecting with America, is 79-year-old Joe Biden the best choice? A lot of people had to fall by the wayside for Joe Biden to become President Joe Biden. One of them right now is his vice president. Another one is Pete Buttigieg. Another one's Elizabeth Warren. Another one's Bernie Sanders. We can keep going. But they all stood aside, if you will, didn't put up much of a fight because they, they, the party infrastructure and power base said, there's only one guy we think can get elected, and that's Joe Biden. So this is really, really interesting today. The conservatives are chasing their tail a little bit on this. I would have stuck, and I would stick it out with Aaron O'Toole. I think the liberals are weakened a little bit. I don't know whether they think they can run Justin Trudeau again a year and a half or two years from now. And I'm not entirely sure. Sometimes you have to believe something. You have to see it to believe it could happen. And I feel that way with Christian Freeland. I'm not sure Christian Freeland is prime ministerial. And I'm not sure the Liberal Party can wipe off enough of what's happened, especially in the last two and a half years. Let's even start with the We Charity scandal. I would make the case that outside of, well, and it's a big one, Justin Trudeau's uh, consistent um, blackface photos, in that were discovered about a month before the 2019 election. I won't say things ran smoothly, but the conservatives had a really tough time pinning down the liberals on stuff. But then when Jody Wilson-Raybould speaks up, when the blackface photos happen, when the We Charity scandal happens, when some of the pandemic issues happen, you've got things. You know that you've got things, and the NDP's even been able to do it, to push at the Liberal Party of Canada, the government, and say they should do this instead of doing that. More of this, less of that. So a lot of that is is real, okay? Aaron O'Toole needed during the election to push more towards the middle, but if the conservative caucus is loud enough and boisterous enough and they don't want him to, and that doesn't go over well in Alberta or that doesn't go over well on the Prairie Provinces, maybe the election just isn't winnable. You cannot be all things to all people sometimes. Do you think that in the last two and a half, three and a half, four and a half shows, 
I've been able to make everybody happy with thoughts on the truckers in Ottawa and what's happening there? No, of course not. It's impossible. And I just wonder if the Conservative Party and whoever the leader is, as John Ibbotson describes it, an untenable contradiction is facing that right now. You can text the show 289-975-1640. Let me switch to this. Uh, in Ottawa this morning, it's still happening. Horns are honking. David Aiken made the uh, point on Twitter, our own David Aiken, who we'll have on at 820 to talk not just about what's happening in Toronto, but this scenario with the uh, Conservative Party of Canada did note that there is a weird agreement amongst the truckers to hit their horns. It felt like it was random at first, but he retweeted an account yesterday that documented that it, the concept is to hit the horns every half hour between 8A and 8P to make it consistent. Truckers know that they're going to lose public support via this. That said, they don't feel like they're being hurt, even still. Um, he retweets uh, this from Jackie Delaney. I was told today by these truckers an edict has gone out to stop the horn blaring between 8P and 8A. They said they understand why people would be upset, but they're feeling even more ignored by Trudeau. They always seem to respond to complaints. And David makes the point, and he's right. Swear to God, swear to God no one would care if 200 trucks were parked on Parliament Hill and blocks around, so long as you couldn't hear them. I'll be in our Parliament Hill Bureau at 6.30 Eastern time. Check the watch 14 minutes from now. Uh, Wednesday morning, I'll be listening. This is also what I'm hearing on the ground from police, and this is a huge, huge issue. I think a lot of us looked yesterday at the news that the Rideau Center was going to close. Not today, not for part of the day today, not until maybe open on Friday. They're closed through the weekend because of this. It's rather remarkable. It's absolutely laying down and saying, there's nothing we can do. And the residents of Ottawa are saying, what do you mean there's nothing we can do here? This has escalated to a certain point in time, and there's been a failure, a breach of trust, in essence, of public officials in Ottawa. You may be able to make the case that the province has been the same, and it's remarkable. And when you breach the public trust, okay, we can look at, at some public health officials and talk about that. How do you get it back? How do you get it back? You can't. Well, that was an accident. Well, I stayed out too late one night. Well, the dog ate my homework. When you keep coming back with excuses, as opposed to proper explanations, and it affects people's lives and businesses and uh, and the money in their bank account, you're going to hear about it, and they're going to have a tough time trusting you again. Mix that in with a friend of a friend says, I know an Ottawa police officer really well, and I know he knows that police officer because he's come up in mutual conversation before, the name and everything. Now, I don't know him, but he says, yeah, I played golf with him. Yeah, I did this. Yeah, I did that. So... Like he wants to say a couple things that he doesn't think the message is getting out. And I'm going to read you some of what he wrote me last night. This is from an Ottawa police officer. There's a lot of different accounts. And by the way, there's a lot of different cops from a lot of different cities, including Toronto police services that have gone up to Ottawa to help with this. That's, that's been documented. We know this. Here's what he writes to me directly. You have to get this out there. We had orders to stand down and quote, observe end quote. We can't stand the sight of ourselves letting the people down who pay our salaries. More action is happening now. I think he's referencing that a couple people uh, were arrested yesterday um, for activities within the city. Back to what he writes me. But we were told any escalation, which meant actually stopping people from committing crimes and embarrassing the city, would only make matters worse. 
I can only say so much, but this isn't right. We put some of our citizens in dangerous situations with this policy. This weekend, it was impossible to sum up who was here. Some people came with bad intentions. Some people came with good intentions. We want to help. We signed up for that duty and responsibility. Our leaders need to answer questions for this. Thank you. And when I posted that last night and said, look, take this at face value. I'm not reporting this. I'm not I'm, I'm never revealing a, a source. Someone else sent me a Facebook post from a police officer, and I'll read you some of this. I never felt so disillusioned with my chosen profession. This is a cop. For the first time in my career, I'm wondering if I can keep going. Our leadership constantly repeats a mantra of accountability. Well, they prance around with chests full of self-awarded medals, yet when things hit the fan, they hide. Our city is under siege from a gang of thugs who have spent the last four days desecrating monuments, I'll use another word, uh, going number two on sidewalks, harassing shopkeepers only, who are only trying to obey the law and chasing people down the street simply for the color of their skin. Yet we who are paid over $100,000 a year to stand up for those who can't won't even lay a damn parking ticket out of fear for making the Nazis angry. Bylaws officers are still out in the suburbs, he notes, hammering regular citizens, though. The inconsistency with which we enforce the law is also telling. And I've heard from enough people in Ottawa. Eric Eiffel came on the show, and she ruffles feathers from time to time, and I'm okay with that. I don't agree with every. Is my job to agree with everything every guest says? No, it ain't. It's not. It's to push back sometimes. Sometimes I do a better job than others. I'll call myself out when I do a really poor job. But Eric Eiffel was right on Monday about a lot of stuff. They have cleared out a Black Lives Matter protest by now. They have cleared out a First Nations protest by now. We know this. BLM is gone by Sunday night. What if there was any remote accusation, whether you believe it or not, that food was stolen from a homeless shelter by either of the groups that I mentioned? Forget about it. Some texts in on uh, on Ottawa. Um, this is uh, Jim listening from Ottawa, the mayor of Ottawa, I don't think. I would like them gone now. I'm listening from Ottawa to your show. It is the nation's capital. This would be unimaginable in any other G7 capital. I don't know where else it's happened in the other six countries. Um, so Jim may be right about that. Here's what some residents were saying. Um, Abigail Beeman put together a great piece last night on Global News. I was happened to have the TV on and saw it. Here's what some of the residents there are saying. And all we hear is these horns going all night long. It's driving us crazy. I haven't slept in three days. We're trying to get to campus, but all of the um, bus routes to campus are closed. It's a little bit intimidating coming into work, which I have to do every day. Yeah, never lived in Ottawa, but you got it. You got to use OC Transpo to get around uh, that city. You sure do need public transit um, to get out to Senators games. Um, there is all, also that to be considered. Shiba Siddiqui joins me now. Can I tell you a funny thing about that first guy? Tell me. So he's um, he went. Uh, he was all these um, uh, food donations have been made to the truckers. So they've got a lot of food. So some of the residents are getting fed now. So this guy went down there. He's upset with the truckers, but they offered him a sandwich. And, and he told Abigail that he <laughs> took it. So his mouth is kind of full during that clip. I'm like, it's it's so funny. It's, it's You know how some people just don't realize they're on TV and you and I would try and make sure a hair was not a place. And, you know, we weren't we're not, chewing. Uh, we weren't chewing. We're not chewing. Gu- he's like eating us. the sandwich, talking to Abigail. I really enjoy that. I'm like, from I would be like, from God. the people he's complaining about. 
<laughs> well, he said during the she says during the piece he accepted the sandwich as payment for keeping him up the last three nights. I'm like, hey, lots of people get paid in a lot of different ways. So you do you, pal. Like they made you a nice bacon and egg sandwich yesterday morning after you slept three and a half hours. I'd take that. You know, we're seeing all of these things. We're hearing from all of these Ottawa residents, Ottawa businesses, all of these, you know, horrible things that happened over the weekend. And in spite of all of this, I feel like we've completely lost the message, which is something that I don't hear anybody focusing on. We're, we're focusing on the complaints of Ottawa residents. Yes, it's terrible that you haven't slept in three days. But at the same time, most of these truckers have driven from all over this country to talk about vaccine mandates. That's what they're angry about. That's what they're blaring their horns about. That's what they're frustrated about. And that's a message that I don't think we're talking about enough. We're not hearing about that enough. We're hearing about all the negativity. And yes, there was all these people saying, you know, the media focused on this, this week, the media focused on that. I, I agree. We didn't focus mm -hmm. enough on the entire message of this. They don't want vaccine mandates. We don't want vaccine mandates. And that's just been completely lost. And I think we need to start bringing that conversation back into this, you know, playing those clips of those Ottawa residents, but also playing a clip from a trucker who's complaining about being forced to get vaccinated. We, we need to bring that conversation back into I, this. I think you make a really good point because here's what I saw yesterday. I, I, and listen, by the way, if people were running around uh, knocking people, we, we had the one guy on yesterday who talked about, in essence, being assaulted, trying to walk towards his daughter's school. We had an yes, Ottawa Tim. resident on talk. Right, Tim. Um, I think if there was more of that, that would be documented. Everybody's got a phone. There'd be more video. I didn't see that as some kind of staged event. The truckers I saw yesterday talking to media were the hardcores that feel exactly the way you do. I would say, I think some of the crazies have gone now. I do. I think some of the 5G yeah. tinfoil hat, the, Mac, the Max Berniers, the Randy H's, all these people have kind of departed. And these are the hardcores that feel this way about exactly what you're saying. Whether they felt this way, again, I think the mandates are a different conversation than last August and September. And you know what I've said about mandating it for kids from the very beginning. I'm against it. Yeah. But this is going to be really, I think the, the guys left, the men and women left, to your point, this is their main message, is, um, is an element of, I wouldn't even say bodily autonomy. It's just the practicality of doing what they do. They're not healthcare workers. They're not in front of our kids. They're, they're raising their, their arms up saying, why us? Why do we need it? And we can't let that message get lost. And I get it. We work in the media. We both know that fight on when it, one end is going to get way, uh, way more views and way more followers if you want to go to social media than that, the piece happening on the other side. So that's what mm -hmm. people have chosen to focus on. But we need to, we need to get that message back there. This is about vaccine mandates, and we can't lose sight of that. Yeah, and, and you're right. If you're if you're on a TV network and you don't have the image of the Nazi flag, or you don't, and you, or you don't have the image of a disturbance, your your boss is going to say, "How come all the other networks have this? What were you guys doing? Oh, we were just interviewing people about the vaccine mandate." But I still, that's not an excuse. You got it's you, not, but yeah, it explains why some of of what it is. You know, I, I said I've got friends that don't work in the media and they say, "You guys in the media, you're making it all about yourselves," and I'm like. Ah, harassment's harassment. If people don't feel safe doing their job out there, that's that's wrong, and it needs to be pointed out and documented. Yeah, that's right. Should be told, but don't forget about the entire reason these oh, most of these truckers drove across country and why they're yeah. so angry. Yeah.
though yesterday and I was pulling into the driveway and I hear uh, Dave Bradley mention, who you just heard at 10 o'clock, that Tom Brady's called it quits. And this flared up over the weekend. And I, I, I don't care who broke the story. I don't care who did this. I don't care who did that. Some people are like, why didn't he break it on his own podcast the night before with Jim Gray? It doesn't matter. The greatest of all time retired. Here's what he said on his Let's Go podcast about where he gets his motivation. And then we're going to talk to a former teammate of his who can elaborate upon that. Here's Tom Brady on the Let's Go podcast Monday night. You know, I think my motivation for for playing football is to is to win and be successful. And maybe there's little parts of motivation that come from different places or what people may say or think. But mo- I'm mostly motivated from uh, inside and, you know, wanting to be the best for my teammates and my coaches and my organization. So now that's kind of where my motivation has been for a long time. And at different times you use different techniques and tools to put yourself in the right frame of mind. But, you know, for me, it's just always being the best I could be. And that's how I've always wanted to be for my teammates. There's Tom Brady. It's never one thing. And the greats, if you're good at your industry, you know, you can have a chip on your shoulder, but you can also support and enhance the people around you. Everybody needs good infrastructure in their life. Our next guest won three Super Bowls as a teammate with Tom Brady with the New England Patriots. He's a fantastic broadcaster. I've gotten to work with him before. I love his football mind and and the non-football mind as well. He is Matt Chatham uh, joining me from uh, the New England area. It's great to have you on here in Toronto. Matt, were you surprised at all uh, by the decision? If I asked you the second that Buccaneers-Rams thriller ended, if Tom was coming back, what would you have said? Uh, Greg, I thought I was a little surprised. I think in part, um, not that he did that he didn't ultimately make that call, but I was a little surprised that, you know, I, I knew that he was miffed that 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 people were sort of giving advance notice of maybe where he was leaning, but what he hadn't yet decided. I thought the podcast was sort of a hey, you know, pause. I, I'm going to do this in my own time, and I haven't decided yet. But then it came back within 24 hours. So. I think that was actually the bigger surprise because, uh, you know, obviously not much has changed from that time to, to when he actually did it. But uh, the one thing we've been, you know, kind of reminding ourselves, wondering which t- way Tommy was going to go is this isn't, you know, we'll, we'll often hear things like this with like a free agency decision or where a guy is going to play next mm-hmm. year or, or whatever. This, this is different. This isn't, I need to go meet with such and such general manager. I need to go meet with the other players. I need to talk to my agent. This is, I got to go talk to my wife, <laughs> you know, which is like a really different dynamic than we normally talk about with like sports uh, figures and their decisions. So this is, I'm going to sit down with my family. So those things can get, uh, I, I think, digested overnight, but uh, it's a different kind of thing he was wrestling with than what most guys, you know, that we talk about in media are, are doing. I can't think of many athletes that can walk uh, knowing that they literally accomplished everything that they ever set out to accomplish. Sure, he'd want an eighth Super Bowl ring. Sure, he'd want to come back next year. And and, and as I documented out of the gate, and he kind of hinted at it, he has enjoyed proving people that have doubted him wrong because they've been there his whole life. Yeah, and I think one of the other things that really helps this, Greg, is that they they he has the opportunity here to walk away on top. And I think most people would would just be amazed by the fact that he's still playing at a high level at 44. And, uh, you know, you know, may, had he been around the, you know, maybe 10th quarterback in productivity this year, he'd still would have proven an, an incredible point, but it, it's even better than that, <laughs> which I think makes it even easier to sort of be persuaded by your family that dude, you've done enough, like more than enough, you know, this is time for a stage change because this guy had a, had a case, 
I think, a stronger case than Aaron Rodgers for MVP, statistically so, but didn't win it. But the point is he was right there. So, I mean, we're not talking about really being impressed that you could still play at a somewhat high level. We're saying the guy at 44 was where he was at at 34. And it's just sort of a not, you know, did I make my point? It's like I'm taking a knee. I'm ending the game. I want to end the game, you know, and it's not – the thing he had put forth before people for so many years was 45, 45, 45. It was just this sort of arbitrary number that he was going to get to. But when you're at 44 and you're looking over the top of 45 and saying, there's no evidence here. I couldn't do it. Couldn't do it for three, four more years. I think at that moment, you've made your point. You want a new, you want a new, uh, another ring with another organization. You've, you've, you've yeah. done it all. And you've, and you've lapped the field so many times. So I could imagine having that much stuff in your back pocket made, those conversations and sort of getting your head to that, that space uh, much, much easier. Matt Chatham is joining us, three-time Super Bowl champ uh, from the New England area here on Toronto today. So you're a, you know, a younger player, a pro football player on a team, and I, I think it's important for our casual uh, football audience. You've got a good quarterback in New England in the 2001 season in Drew Bledsoe. He's a top-10 quarterback. He's been to the Super Bowl. He's probably close to the prime of his age. He gets injured. Tom steps in. From maybe third on the depth chart, really, because you had John Freeze there, Michael Bishop, who was amazing in college, was drafted there before. Um, when did you have a sense, Matt, that this you just weren't seeing a normal quarterback? I know he comes in and wins the Super Bowl, but the next year you miss the playoffs. And that happens. And a lot of guys go to the Super Bowl. Drew Brees, Aaron Rodgers. When did you know? This is a tough question. That Tom Brady was Tom freaking Brady. When did you know? Yeah, I think the transition from just being you know, really impressed with how stable this guy was, how, you know, smart he was, how, you know, the metal that he had. Like this guy didn't get a lot of live work and all of a sudden steps right in and he's playing really well. But we all know that the level Tommy was playing at in 2000 and 02 and, you know, that that time is, is many universes from where he, he ended up now. Uh, but it was still really impressive how quickly he picked it up, how composed he was, how smooth he was. But, you know, he was still at an early growth stage. So, uh, you know, the the sort of uh, persona, you know, the public persona, you know, the, the, the big TV 12 thing and, and, and just being Tom Brady, that stuff, you know, definitely came more so towards the end of that three out of four run, you know, where we were a, an excellent team, you know, and it was it was sort of uh, a lot, a lot of contributors. But I think Tom's comfort in the role and then just real excellence started to happen probably closer to the end of that three out of four. But then just the explosive, the explosion thereafter, you know, where he starts just mowing down everyone. <laughs> you know, when we get into mm-hmm. 05 and six and seven, and even some of those years where he wasn't, you know, they, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't win the championship. I was in New York by then, but you could tell that this guy was absolutely something special. But I would just say it's not as if there was some sort of twinkle moment. Oh my gosh, this is guy is the goat. It, it was year over year. Last one. I, I don't know if I mentioned it to you when, when we got to do um, a few playoff games together, but when I covered him at Michigan and I worked in Detroit for 10 years, he, his senior year, he had to split time with a freshman named Drew Henson, who was a consensus number one pick. Everybody knew who he was. And I talked to him about that. And um, boy, you know, like he, he, that rankled him, that bothered him. Eventually he won the job. He got to start against Ohio state. He got to win the orange bowl against Alabama. I've always thought that that impacted just how bad he wanted it. Cause nothing came easy to him. He wasn't a number one overall pick. He wasn't a consensus all American. Do You ever feel, I don't know if he ever talked about that, that sort of, the, you know, being sort of 
dissed a little bit at Michigan. Do you think that that helped mold him to the pro athlete he became? Well, I know those early years, Greg. I mean, in 2000, you sort of you touched on the chart a little bit. It was, you know, he was fourth. I mean, it was it was Drew and it was John Freeze who had been a starter in San Diego and was sort of brought out as our veteran backup to Drew that year. And then Michael Bishop was the new sort of, you know, phenomenon. Like he's he was drafted a little higher. Uh, it was the year before in 99, but he was the different type of quarterback, um, you know, had a long career up in Canada. He's ended up being a, a good pro, but, you know, obviously a different style than a big statue six, six guy like Drew. So it wasn't just Drew. That was the, the sort of impediment. <laughs> he had a lot to get through. You know, he had a whole sort of thing to weave through there to get to the top of the depth chart. Uh, obviously Michael's bring a lot different things to the table when you're battling with him in practice. And John Freeze has just taken a thousand reps because he's a 10 year guy at the time or whatever. And that's the kind of advantage older veterans always have. They just know it better. You know, they're not going to make as many mistakes. So he was fighting all through 2000. I mean, there were, there was a lot of times where we'd come home from the road trip and Tommy didn't get to make the, make the trip. You know, he wasn't traveling as the fourth. So, and that pissed him off, obviously. He, he, so the, the, the battles you're having early on aren't necessarily to prove that you're the goat or anything like that, or, or even that you're necessarily better than Drew, just that you can incrementally make the steps. <laughs> like, are you yeah. good enough to be the third? Good enough to be the second? You know, that kind of thing. So we battled all through that with, in 2000, you know, coming home from Detroit, coming home from Atlanta, whatever the place would be. And Tom's sitting there with his playbook open in the condo, you know, waiting for a, waiting for us to arrive and pissed that he wasn't with us. I think so many people can relate to that. Just, just, yeah, that, that doubt and, and wanting to push through and, and prove it. Uh, awesome to have you on Matt. Thanks very much for, uh, for sharing these anecdotes with our audience. And I'm always a fan of your work. Thanks for making the time early for us. My pleasure. See you, bud. Matt Chatham from uh, the new England sports network. I spotted this on Newsweek last week. Here's the headline. We're a physician and mathematician and a data scientist. N95s won't work for kids. Interesting. Uh, one of the authors of that piece joins me right now. Ben Recht is a professor of electrical engineering computer sciences at University of Cal Berkeley. Ben, thank you for getting up early for us. Some of what the article documents is the fact that this is all a very new process for parents to consider masks for kids, isn't it? Up until recently, the advice has been, first of all, there are no N95 masks approved for children anywhere just just not and there's plenty of evidence and we cite some of this in our piece mm -hmm. of um previous recommendations that children not wear respirators um and and the reason being is because again you know kids fidget so that you're not going to have a good fit um the, the masks typically are not fit to their face in the first place and trying to, you know, I'm speaking as the father of a nine-year-old who has a minor uh, oral fixation, you know, you're trying to convince this kid not to chew on this or not to touch it, all of these things that are important. It's just, you know, it's, it's very difficult for elementary school kids and even for, honestly for, for any, even for adults to wear them for extended periods of time is very onerous. Um, so I think the idea that that could work for children is, is um, just, just not proven and moreover, not recommended before I'd never heard of anyone thinking of putting an N95 on a child before um, um, this, this latest wave. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. Ben Recht is our guest uh, from uh, Cal Berkeley um, professor there on Toronto today on 640 Toronto. We seen photos and you referenced them in the, um, 
in the, in the Newsweek uh, piece about, you know, healthcare workers and whatnot. And they take the mask off and they would take like a selfie with, with their face, like all messed up. It's almost like, like, you know, you wear a football helmet and then uh, take it off and you can, you can see sort of the, it leaves a red mark here and there. You wear an N95 for a 12 hour shift almost continuously. It leaves some marking and leaves some bruising. You, you noted that in the piece, didn't you? Yes, absolutely. I mean, even for an hour, I mean, I've, 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 I've worn them. So in California, but um, pre, we have a lot of disasters in California It's kind of a part of living here. Yeah. And one of the, one of the, I think many of your listeners probably know we had a series of very traumatic, very damaging fire seasons. And in the fire seasons, you know, in California, we would often get uh, air quality indices that would just be unfathomable where it would be very hard to breathe going outside. I mean, just numbers that were just completely off the charts and really, um, it's so hard for me to describe what that felt like. And just taking a walk around the block, you feel winded. So you're a fit guy. You felt it's not even like, like altitude. You, you know, you fly to Denver and then I remember going to Denver and then getting out, going for a run on a treadmill and my God, half an hour, half a, half a mile in you're gasping. Was it a bit like that? No, I think it was closer to, I feel like, I think if you've, been around a weird, bad smell, like some kind of chemical leak or some kind of other like unpleasant experience. And then you start to get a headache and you just don't feel well. It's much closer to that. It's, it's a little bit hard to articulate. And the reason I'm bringing up the wildfires is because this was one in California, everyone started to buy N95 masks. Mm-hmm. There are tons of them, you know, you'd buy, you go to the Home Depot, you could buy them. Um, and so I, I tried, I had, I would wear them to the grocery store because just to go out of that, you know, we had an air purifier in the house and just to go outside, even for a few minutes would be pretty uh, unpleasant. Um, and yeah, you would come home and, you know, you would have like uh, horrible marks on your face, even just going for a quick trip. And they're very uncomfortable. And I could never wait to get that thing off. And I think about that, even if we're to depart from schools for a sec, Ben, you go to a restaurant and see somebody in an N95 mask. And I'm still I'm still struggling with where we get to um, knowing that we're in a restaurant, knowing we're vaccinated. Uh, and then and that's why we're there. We're allowed in because we're vaccinated, knowing the staff is vaccinated. I'd love for that waiter or waitress to feel free to take her mask off because I'm surrounded by 50 masks yeah. people already eating. I don't want her or him wearing an N95. I remember what those shifts used to be. I used to wait tables and you're working from, you're on your feet from 4.30 till 1 a.m., 2 a.m. That's a, I, I don't have to put a mask on for more than 20 minutes at a time. I, I can't imagine right. what that's like. You know, having that empathy, not not just to our kids, but to the people who are mandated to wear these at work. I mean, it's it's a it's a ask. It's not a minimal ask. It is a very, it's a, it's a very painful intervention. The pandemic has come with many different interventions. And I, I still think that we downplay the miracle of our vaccines. They are really something that is, a, as far as I've, I read a lot of medical papers, uh, finding thing, treatments that are that effective almost never happen. Almost never happen. Not that so quickly, are, right? Not, not, not within Definitely not year. that quickly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, these are things like, this is like a breakthrough, like penicillin, and we just take it for granted. Um, and unfortunately, the, the data available for masking is not as strong. And it's unfortunate that we, it's clear that they are a visible intervention, but that we equate them, I think has been a mistake. Well, I've seen enough stories of people who say they've lost a family member um, because they almost did equate 
the you know they consider the mask some kind of iron fortress because they get told by public health officials and government officials the mask protects you it protects everybody around you it does this and that so people might say well why would i get the vaccine that makes me nervous the mask keeps me going here and it yeah. doesn't and it won't depending on your circumstances and there there's tragic tragic stories and again you and i could go for hours about how politicized it's got on all sides i mean there have been people yeah. that stupidly haven't worn them anywhere pre-vaccination and refused to and we're defiant about it they're dead and yet at the same time we've got people on the far side saying well we should get used to wearing them and, and kids should just wear them in perpetuity and i don't agree with that that any more than i do the the you oh, know the right. former example I, I no i agree and i think um i really do want to focus on children who have bared just in both the United States and Canada, they have bared so much of the burden of the restrictions. And yet we're, you know, um, I, I just not deniable that they, they were the least uh, at risk. So children are the least at risk. I mean, that another miracle of this pandemic was not a human miracle. It was an evolutionary miracle that the there is a exponential difference in terms of risk of death between a 75-year-old and a five-year-old. I mean, it's like 10,000 fold. It's, it's an absolutely mind-boggling number about how much more at risk an older person is. Five-year-olds in the United States can be vaccinated. Anyone five and up can be vaccinated. Mm -hmm. um, and the added benefit of keeping them masked all day has to be weighed against the costs. And it's uh, not clear at all to any, I mean, it's, the data is not equivocal that says that this is providing much benefit at all. And I'd say this, uh, Ben Recht is our guest, by the way, from Cal Berkeley, professor there on Toronto Today. Um, since Omicron, there's been there's no data on masks. It's too new. It, and and yeah. it's it's been far too transmissible, less severe. I know people get ticked off with with the mild word and that's OK, but it, we'll, we'll call it less severe to uh, to placate. And uh, and but there's no data whatsoever with such a transmissible uh, transmissible virus. I, that that concerns me that we've been, you know, we're, we're still leaning back on cloth masks. And for a long period of time, we've questioned their their usefulness in those situations. Oh, I agree. And so so I think the problem with I, I, I first I want to say there's all of the data that has come out so far has shown that cloth masks do nothing. And in fact, are arguably harmful. Uh, there there were studies pre covid in healthcare settings that actually showed that people wearing cloth masks um, may even have a increased risk of infection. And it's not, I don't know the mechanism. I'm just saying that this, yeah. was, this was the data. It was clear that they did not have a decreased risk of infection, infection in any study. So it's, it's quite clear that that's true about alpha, delta, Omicron, whatever letter we come up with, that cloth masking at a community level is not an effective intervention. Now, what people will come back to you with, and I think this is the, this is the difficult conversation we all have to have, mm -hmm. is that, well, then we should upgrade our masks. And I think that has to be challenged because I do, I think it is, and this is what we try to talk about in our article. It is not a harmless intervention to make people wear N95s, especially kids. There is harm associated with it. And I think we have to understand that there's harm. They're uncomfortable. They're hard to speak through. They're hard to wear properly. Um, and I think that, you know, the, so it's, it's not a harmless intervention and hence, we really have to think through the trade-offs of what it means to force our kids to wear that those sorts of um, facial coverings. I really am glad you said that, and I struggle so much with the the um, the, the pushback. And again, 
I feel like in a pre-vaccination world, um, it, not knowing a lot of the data, we had to take every precaution. I was happy to put that thing on my face and feel more emboldened to go in a store or to be here or there. I felt weird, you know, going into the gym and taking it off or even taking it off in the locker room. Vaccination changed that because they are so miraculous and, and they're so widespread. I know that the average is nine out of 10 people around me are fully vaccinated, just like I am. It doesn't prevent breakthrough cases. They're working. And I'd hate for people to think that they're not because of looking at quote unquote cases. But our our lack of fully vaccinated or boosted people in hospital and on ICU beds is telling us that they're working. I agree that they're not only are they working, but um you know, I think I think it's it's hard to say. Do they actually provide protection? Do, do they stop transmission? And I think it's a complicated question and it's a hard story. But I really think just leading with that first thing about how much protection they provide to you mm-hmm. and to your loved ones, and especially to your uh, your older relatives. These are important. Um, these are important tools. Um, I think everybody should get educated about them. And I think that, I mean, I, I personally believe that vaccines will end the pandemic. That's alone with nothing else. These vaccines, if we can convince everyone to take them, and I don't convince, I don't mean bully. I don't mean like take away rights. Um, I'm a big believer that, you know, the, the way you can convince people to take vaccines is to just meet them where they are, have a conversation and provide, perhaps even provide incentives that would encourage that uptake. But I, I mean, and I think we could do that. And I worry that we have a limited amount of resources we can put into public health messaging, public health interventions, and focusing all of those resources on vaccination, I think would be a, a hugely beneficial um, uh, direction. And I struggle with, um, you know, someone as brilliant as Dan Rather said the other day, wrote it on Twitter. He said, well, you know, the, the, the kids don't complain about the mass. It's all the adults that are. And I'm like, kids don't complain when they're five, six and seven. They're just gauging right from wrong. They're just starting to understand, um, you know, what, um, you know, how to live and, and what guidelines and, and we're all going to mess up. We're going to mess up every day, every week, every month, the rest of our lives. But guess what? There's kids that are four years old who, who used to get spanked. And you think four-year-olds are going to, I'm not comparing it to physical violence, but are are kids that get spanked going to rise up and have a demonstration and and make (laughs) some signs and stay in? No, it took adults to tell other adults, you can't do that in the grocery store. You can't whack your kid like that because he, uh, you know, he, uh, he broke a glass in the kitchen and our society turned around in that respect. Like this is not that, but it's not totally dissimilar that adults are going to have to talk and correct other adults on this, I think. Yeah. And I think, I think it's, it's also this kind of thing that children want to please Adults, yes, especially compliant. their family members, they're very compliant. They, oh, they're when so, your dad would say, when my dad would say to me, "I'm angry at you," that never resonated as much as I'm disappointed in you. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> like, exactly. I didn't want to so, disappoint him. I mean, my 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 own personal anecdote is my son loves to complain about masks. <laughs> This uh, is up on Newsweek.com. Uh, we'll put a link towards it uh, after we uh, uh, put our podcast out as well. Uh, ben Rex, Ben guest, professor of en- electrical engineering, computer sciences at the University of California, Berkeley. It's a great pleasure having you on. Thank you very much for your messaging. It was a fascinating read. And uh, to your point, yeah, it's, uh, you know, we're pretty polarized right now. Not everyone's going to agree with it, but you're giving them information and you're giving them data-based pragmatism. And I'm a big fan of that. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for so much for having me. It was a pleasure talking with you. 
Our strong sources are chief political correspondent David Aiken uh, for Global News. He joins us um, uh, from Ottawa, obviously, with a massive political day ahead. But, David, I'm hearing from my other sources in Ottawa that the honking is lesser than. I, I, I had it described to me in a text this morning that people got a better night's sleep last night in the city proper. Um, can you can you enlighten us on that one to start? Yeah, the, the headline today, Greg, is, uh, is it, for me, is uh, truckers toot. Tory's tassel. That's really what we're going to have happen here. But uh, um, yeah, I can tell you that the, the, I got on, I got I'm on Parliament Hill right now. I'm looking down at uh, the East Block from our Parliamentary Bureau, and uh, I was here about seven fifteen, and the first horns, air horns, started at seven thirty. Uh, they've been going pretty much ever since. Um, the, the 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 noise has been the real thing that has the you know fifty thousand or so people who live downtown have to work downtown. Um, just, you know, it, they've lost all support for the, tr the truckers have no support from any downtown because nobody can get any sleep. So the noise is one thing. Last night, Ottawa police put out a press release saying they've made two arrests. Uh, one of those arrests is, uh, they're both Ottawa, both men. Uh, one was arrested for mischief. Don't really have a lot of details on, on what kind of mischief. Uh, then another one was arrested on a weapons charge, bringing a gun to a public meeting. You're not supposed to do that. So uh, that's another arrest. Police say they have 13 investigations underway. But the police also last night put a number on how many are still here. And it's surprisingly small. It, the police say it's 250. That's right, just 250. Um, mind you, a lot of those 250, I'm looking down, they have these, you know, 20 meter long tractor trailers, so they can take up a bit of space. Um, a lot of roads remain blocked in the downtown core, but there is enough space for emergency vehicles to get by, for parliamentarians to get to Parliament Hill to do whatever they want to do. So uh, that's where we're at. The uh, protest organizers put a press release out this morning. They say tens of thousands of people are here, and I don't think that's true. I'm looking right at it. Um, maybe 250 is a little small from the police, but it ain't tens of thousands. Uh, the organizers also say uh, they're not going anywhere until their demands are met. And those demands, of course, are lifting public health restrictions right across the country. You uh, tweeted this out from uh, Jackie Delaney last night, and it's a picture of a trucker holding like uh, basically I wouldn't call it a manifesto, but it's it's an organized horn blast on the half hour and it says hold horn for one minute straight 8 a.m to 8 p.m every half hour is has that been sort of the the rhythm if you will of uh of, of the horns and the noise in the city mm, not really what's uh what time is it now but 8 25 they've been going since uh 7 40 solid so that's a 40 minute horn blast i mean you know they, they and i see guys walking around sort of Given the, you know, you know, like you did when you were a kid by the side of the road and a truck went by and you gave like the honk the horn sort of thing, pump your, yeah. your fist in the air. There's guys walking around doing that and the, and the truckers are responding by honking their horns. Um, I know it goes to the municipal level, but I got to ask you, there's a lot of heat on uh, Mayor Jim Watson. There's a lot of people wondering. There's a lot of residents wondering, when do we get this back? And I'm hearing from police who are telling me specifically that that there's a little more of a of an aggressive stance now, but they were really told don't escalate things. Cameras everywhere. Stand down to some extent Saturday and Sunday. This is gonna. There's a level of trust that that I think the municipal government um, and the police chief maybe have to get back from the citizens of Ottawa. Anything on that? Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, there's certainly you can tell that there, again. There's municipal councillors who are ready to sue. By the way, the GoFundMe uh, group, which is the organization through which these these uh, organizers have said they've got eight million dollars. So some municipal councillors have directed the city solicitor to sue this guys to get some of the costs 
for the policing. We're told that the policing cost is 800,000 bucks a day. Uh, that's what it costs in overtime, et cetera. I see OPP cruisers are here. There's Toronto police here, paramedics from uh, out of town here. Um, you know, I, I mean, the police are not going to divulge their strategy for obvious reasons for removing the truckers. They have said they, you know, if it comes to it, they have the means to, uh, you know, remove people from Parliament Hill. But I have seen uh, protests, not not of this scale and, and this noise before, where a protest group, uh, you know, literally camps uh, under the trees next to the National War Memorial for four to six months. And police approaches to contain it, don't let anybody else join it. And then it just sort of disappears by attrition without anybody having to knock some heads. That, mm-hmm. that I think is... It seems evident that's the approach of, of police to this point with this protest on the Hill with these trucks is uh, I think they're going to wait and see how many people do have to go back to a job, run out of money or whatever it might be. Um, as I say, when I came down this morning and I, I did a quick tour around to check out the the blockades of the trucks, and there are some holes now in the blockades. You know, a truck that was here yesterday, there's a hole now. It's So some people left. But I would say, you know, the police say there's 250 people here. I'd say there's probably still 200 vehicles uh, at various intersections sort of around the downtown. But uh, but again, there's a, there's a lot fewer. And the important thing is that those emergency lanes are uh, still open. I so appreciate that context. I think that's great for our audience to sort of visualize, given that you're right there. I got about two minutes, so I want and I, you got about two minutes. So I want to let you flesh out what kind of day you think this is in terms of political intrigue within the conservative party. This is this is a challenge. Andrew Scheer kind of went quietly, if you will, after the 2019 federal election. This is not what that is with Aaron O'Toole digging in his heels and wanting to keep his job. Yeah, and uh, he could be out of a job by lunchtime. So uh, in about half an hour's time at 9 o'clock, the Conservative Caucus will uh, begin a meeting. It normally meets Wednesday mornings. It's caucus morning on Parliament Hill, so it's not unusual they're having a meeting. But the, the the subject of the meeting is very unusual, historic. There will be a vote on Aaron O'Toole's leadership. There's 119 MPs, Conservative MPs. So, and Aaron O'Toole needs to have the support of 60, one half of them. And then he could keep his job. Now, if he gets 60, I think it's going to be pretty tough knowing that, you know, 59 are against you while 60 are for you. But that's all he needs. And on the other hand, the people who want to kick him out only need 60. And I'm told, or I'm not told, but I, there, there's sort of rumors going around that that group has 63 votes. So it is possible that O'Toole could be out of a job by lunchtime. If that happens, then the, the caucus that is meeting this morning, the next thing they do would be to select an interim leader. Somebody wants to lead it until the party can organize a full-blown leadership race. Who knows how long that will take? So it is going to be uh, an interesting morning. The meeting is uh, is virtual by Zoom only. Um, I'm not sure what to make of that. It might favor the O'Toole plus. Uh, who knows? And it's weird because the Conservative caucus has been most interested in doing everything on the Hill in person, in person House of Commons, in person question period, in person caucus meetings, except for today. They want to do it all virtually. So they'll do it at nine. Uh, MPs have been told to block four hours out for this meeting. Uh, but we've also been told you could see results as early as 11 a.m. So uh, um, don't go home and have a nap after this. You want to stay up at least to 11 a.m. and hear what's going on up here. Well, I watched you on election night. Uh, you, you nap sparingly at moments like this, and uh, nobody better to, to check in with on this front, David. We'll be watching uh, certainly this afternoon and this evening uh, for you to keep us updated. Thanks for spending time with our audience today. No problem. Cheers. David Aiken, chief political correspondent. Fascinating. So a 9 o'clock vote. David lays that out there. Budget four hours for it. Who, who doesn't love a good four-hour Zoom?
Whoopi Goldberg um, suspended two weeks from The View. That came down late last night. She won't be on the show. Uh, I want to play you some audio. Um, in, in, so just to give you the proper context, here's Whoopi's initial comments on The View. They were talking about that book that was banned in Tennessee, like a graphic novel that referenced the Holocaust through the eyes of, well, rodents. Appropriate, given it's Groundhog Day, and a groundhog is a rodent, but this was not that. This is Whoopi talking about the Holocaust on uh, two, on Monday's episode of The View on ABC. Then let's be truthful about it, because the Holocaust isn't about race. No. No, it's well, not about maybe race. Maybe it, it, yeah, no, it's Jews about a different it, race. But it's it's not about race. It's not about well, race. What is it about? Because you, it's about man's inhumanity to man. That's what it's about. But it's about white supremacy. It's well, about but going it's not, after it's Jews not about and, ideal and race. It's, and but these are two Romans. white groups of people. Well, how do we have to black people see them, them as white? Then. And they, but you're missing the point. You're missing yeah. the point. The yeah. minute you turn it into race, it goes down this alley. Let's talk about it for what it is. It's how people treat each other. Okay, so that was that was the original show. Um, the great thing about the View for the last 24 years, no matter who's hosted it, is. It's not like you get five people talking at the same time for half the show. So that's good. I think that's wonderful. No wonder it's it's been successful as long as it's been uh, through this host and that host. Whoopi goes on Stephen Colbert's late show, uh, the late show with Stephen Colbert, and I'm sure that she'll be able to make this better. This is easy. Whoopi's done this a long time. She knows how to communicate. I'm also sure she won't reference the color of her own skin as a defense mechanism once but twice. Have a listen. Because I've, I feel being black, when we talk about race, it's a very different thing to me. Mm-hmm. So I said that I, I felt that the Holocaust wasn't about race. And people got very, very, very angry and still are angry. I mean, I'm getting, you know, all of the, the mail from folks and mm-hmm. the very real anger because people feel very differently. But I thought it was... a a salient discussion because as a black person, I think of race as being something that I can see. So I see you and I know what race you are. And the discussion was about how I felt about that. I felt that that it was really more about man's inhumanity to man and how horrible people can be to people. And we're seeing it manifest itself these days. Okay. Um, I took two things from that. One, that's a double down if I've ever heard one. Um, I've doubled down before. I know what it sounds like. And Whoopi is also black. I took that away from it. Here's her actual apology the morning after. She's going to give this another go. You see how this lands. And while discussing how a Tennessee school board unanimously, unanimously voted to remove a graphic novel about the Holocaust, I said that the Holocaust wasn't about race. And it was instead about man's inhumanity to man. But it is indeed about race because Hitler and the Nazis considered Jews to be an inferior race. Now, words matter and mine are no exception. I regret my comments, as I said, and I stand corrected. I also stand with the Jewish people as they know and y'all know because I've always done that. Okay. Um, now the suspension really surprised me. I will say that. Let's get our next guest reaction now that we've caught you up on all the statements of all the, the three faces of uh, Whoopi Goldberg. Neil Orlovsky is director of education for the Abraham Global Peace Initiative, and he joins me now. 
I gave you and the audience a lot of audio there, Neil. Um, first of all, let me get, let, we'll go backwards in time. The suspension comes last night. I'm really surprised at it. What was your reaction to it? So first off, uh, good morning. Thank you for having me today. Uh, right off the bat, I also was surprised. Um, I'm not a fan of suspensions. And I think that the the two-week suspension coming out, I, I read it this morning, um, is, isn't what's needed. I think it, it really brushes the comment under the rug. It, it, it comes off as, you know, nothing to see here during a time when we really need not only to uh, deconstruct what she had said, but understand and unveil that this is a larger issue. I think that that the suspension really just takes the 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 shadow off of the uh, sorry off off of this show itself. Uh, this is a time for education. We've talked a ton. I know you do in in your um, line of work as well about teachable moments and we're all over the map right now where, you know, let's banish Joe Rogan. Let's stop certain books from being in school. Let's deplatform people on social media. And I look at it and I say, I want to, I want to learn things. I want to evolve. We mm -hmm. all have evolved. We, we evolve moment by moment, decade by decade as people, I hope. And, and let's fight bad speech with better speech. What she said was wrong. What she said was clunky and awkward, but deplatforming, censoring. Um, I agree with you the the messaging, we won't learn anything if we just keep dividing each other. Right. Um, you know, what I would say is, you know, her comments, you know, people tell me they're anti sorry, that they're, they're um, anti-Semitic, that they're racist. Um, by saying that the Holocaust wasn't about race, that it was really just about two white groups fighting. I think that she shared a revisionist history and she really distorted the lived realities of the Holocaust and really the environment throughout Europe during World War II. Um, I think people need to realize that her comments came five days after International Holocaust Remembrance Day, a day when the world commemorates the 77th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, the one camp that exterminated 1.1 million people over four years. Um, if, you know, people ask, what would I say to Whoopi? Um, you know, the truth is that the Holocaust was about race. The fact that she doesn't see Jewishness, but that, you know, we, we, prescribe the, these symbols of race as color, it's a very narrow view of how we see race. Hitler was driven by a racist ideology that regarded Jews as parasitic vermin. He called for the extermination. We heard the same rhetoric during the Rwandan genocide when Tutsis were labeled cockroaches and Hutus called for their extermination. My question then would be, was Rwanda just about the inhumanity of man? Or maybe in her view, if the Holocaust was white on white violence, was Rwanda black on black violence? And I think that that would be absurd. We can go to the Balkans, can we, in the mid-90s? I, I wrote a Absolutely. paper on that in university and, and talk about ethnic cleansing um, in, in the former uh, in Yugoslavia, right? Um, mm -hmm. it's, it, it's, it's massively important to talk about. And yet those comparative points, I'm real. Look, th there's, two, there's two layers to the discussion. One is... The practicality and laying out it out with data and evidence of what Hitler said, what he thought, what his followers felt. And then there's also somebody in the media in front of a microphone. And again, we're all going to have our slip ups from time to time. But I, I just I played you those last two pieces of audio and I'm like, I just don't hear um, I just don't hear a someone reading the room and I don't hear somebody realizing that this isn't a matter of, of opinion. It's a matter of, of, of like we've talked about data and, and fact about what yeah. was said and what was felt. 
And, and that data piece is key because I think a lot of it plays into, you know, you talk about reading the room. For me, I call this the distinction between left-wing and right-wing anti-Semitism. And we're, we're seeing this right now with, with right-wing anti-Semitism being the more overt. We see this every day. Swastika is on Parliament Hill. We see Nazi flags, salutes. We, we, we refer to the Tree of Life uh, shooting, the Chabad of Power um, shooting. But we're seeing the rise of what I'm calling left-wing anti-Semitism. And this really becomes the most dangerous. And I think that she's echoing that position. It's about decentering the Jewish experience from history. It's about assimilating Jews through the removal of identities, questions over indigeneity. It's gaslighting Jewish encounters. And, and really, it's about labeling the Jewish people as the majority white and everything then that comes with it, white supremacy, a history of oppression against other marginalized and racialized bodies. And, you know, we're talking about data. Right. If we look at the Toronto data that came out just a year ago, that 34% of all hate crimes against any ethnic or religious group in, in Canada were 34% against Jews. They made up the largest percentage when Jews only accounted for less than 4% of Toronto's population. We know that Jews make up 0.1% of Canada, 0.2% of the world's population. And yet, these comments play into this anti-Semitic trope that Jews have, you know, some sort of collective privilege and power in the world. And then to then say the Holocaust wasn't about race. It, it was just about Jews as whites or Roma as whites or, or, or gypsies as whites negates the actual lived experiences that these groups that other racialized or marginalized bodies are facing. Neil Orlowski is kind enough to join us on Toronto Today, Director of Education for the Abraham Global Peace Initiative. The one thing I struggle with, too, and, and I, I'd broaden this out and I'd say, if you quote unquote, you know, push somebody off their platform, somebody as as well known as iconic as Whoopi Goldberg, I, I'm worried about that. You'll get people to then turn and get angrier and more resentful. I want Whoopi and, and people who love what she does. OK, and she has that following. I'd say this about Dave Chappelle with the arguments about Netflix and, and, and people that are very upset about some transphobic comments. They do exist. But if you shove people off instead of giving them um, the power to educate and, and, and show some sunlight on them, then you're just you're just going to deepen the divides in some of these cases, especially with well-known people. Mm -hmm. um, there's no doubt about that. I think when we when we cancel people, and that's the word I'm going to use, because I am fearful we are going to cancel Whoopi Goldberg. She is iconic. And I think what that would end up doing is, is just ignoring that there's no education. We need better education around not just Holocaust, but about the ways anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, all forms of hate and all of the isms manifest, not just in schools, but in societies. There is no doubt that the racism or anti-Semitism that I experience is different than those that are visually racialized minority groups. No doubt about that. We know that we can convert to Judaism, but it is more than a religion. You know, Deborah Messing last night from Will and Grace, she, she's quite the, um, the advocate. She's, vo she's vocal. <laughs> uh, she's very vocal. And, you know, she, she made an interesting uh, comment last night that really resonated for me because as a teacher, I, a lot of people ask me, what's the issue around black lives, white, why lives matter and so on. And I really, I, I, I'm very, I, I don't like getting into that conversation because it's not my narrative to discuss, but Messing tweeted that Whoopi Goldberg, basically all lives mattered the Jewish experience. 
And that resonated with me because mm. it, it fully negated a history of religious persecution. And I think at the same time, really cheapened the experience of the 12 million victims, 6 million of which are Jews that died in the Holocaust and whose ghosts are, are really just being uncovered today. I know we had other stuff to get to. I'm so tight for time because we went so in in depth here. But another time, will you come back on the show soon and and we can uh, branch into some of these important issues of communicating how we talk, how we even debate um, things of uh, of a hot a hot button nature. Absolutely, I'd love to to speak with you again and and listen to all of your guests. Thanks so much, Neil Orlovsky, Director of Education from the Abraham Global Peace Initiative on Whoopi Goldberg. Thanks for listening to Toronto Today. We'll be back with another live show tomorrow on Thursday, February the 3rd. We appreciate you finding us and subscribing. Please feel free to share with a friend. We'd love to grow our audience. Thanks very much for being a part of it.